Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. My guest today, Scott Shane, is a veteran reporter with the New York Times. His latest book is titled Objective Troy, A Terrorist, a President, and the Rise of the Drone. It tells the story of Anwar al-Awlaki and President Obama's decision to kill him. Alaki was an American-born man of Yemeni descent. He was a charismatic preacher who later moved to Yemen and joined an al-Qaeda affiliate, and in 2011, he was killed by a U.S. drone strike, making him the first American since the Civil War to be deliberately assassinated by his own government. Scott Shane's book is a masterpiece that won the 2016 Lionel Gerber Prize for Best International Affairs Book. It's now out in paperback, and unlike most episodes where we spend the first 10 or 15 minutes speaking about an author's new book before exploring their own life story, Scott and I spend the bulk of our conversation telling the remarkable and gripping story of Alaki before talking about Scott's own career. And before we begin, a huge, huge thank you to everyone who contributed to the fundraising drive last month. So appreciate your support. It is tremendously meaningful and helpful, and thank you. And finally, if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Visit globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives, uh, which are robust and contain just a lot of pretty evergreen material. So go back and listen to some older episodes. Uh, They will be as relevant now as they were when they were first published. And now here is Scott Shane of the New York Times. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. His father, Nasser Al-Alaki, had uh, come to the U.S., as a Fulbright scholar in the 60s and stayed for about a dozen years, ended up with a PhD in agricultural economics and taught for a while. He got his PhD at the University of Nebraska. um, But prior to that, he'd studied at the uh, at New Mexico State. And it was when he was studying at New Mexico State that young Anwar was born. So he was born in the U.S., a U.S. citizen. His father uh, returned, the family returned to Yemen when Anwar was about seven years old. His father went on to become Yemen's agriculture minister. And like the government of uh, Saleh? Yes. And uh, chancellor of one university, founder of another, uh, a very prominent guy. And somebody I should say, uh, ironically, given what happened later, a real admirer of the United States. Um, he really loved the U.S. Is he and still alive? Is he still around? He still is, yeah. He's in his early 70s. Is he living and in Yemen or the United States? He, he lives in Yemen, which, of course, is in the middle of a 
disastrous civil war. He's stayed there throughout. So Anwar spends his first seven years in the U.S., uh, arrives back in in Yemen at the age of seven, uh, speaking English better than he speaks Arabic, spends the years from seven to 19 uh, in Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, going to school. And uh, then his father you know, sees for his son uh, a future pretty much following his own path. So he wants to send him to the United States to get a, an engineering degree with the idea that someday he'll return to Yemen and, and help this country. Uh, for those who don't know, it's got about the same population, 25, 26 million, as Saudi Arabia occupies uh, the southern part of the uh, Arabian Peninsula with Saudi Arabia to the north. Um, and they're very similar in every way, except that the Saudis got the oil. So the Saudis are obviously extremely wealthy and Yemen is the poorest country in the Arab world and, uh, has a lot of problems, uh, lack of water, uh, being perhaps the most pressing one, um, poverty. And so the idea that Nasser Awliki had for his son Anwar who uh, was an excellent student and showed a lot of promise, was he would go to Colorado State, get an engineering degree, eventually come back to Yemen and, and uh, you know, work as a sort of technocrat. Uh, his son arrived in the U.S. without any particular interest in religion, but discovered religion, discovered Islam in a big way. Of course, he, you know, he knew what Islam was. He'd been to the mosque, but it was a fairly secular family. He really took an interest in religion, ironically, uh, only after arriving at Colorado State, came in under the influence of some older uh, Muslim students. And I should uh, say that that's like not terribly like um, out of the ordinary, right, where where you have kind of students discovering themselves, you know, this time, you know, a a guy kind of displaced who is now living in Fort Collins, Colorado, um, kind of finding his his identity. That that part of the story doesn't strike me as as terribly, you know, bizarre. No, not bizarre at all, although um, Yemen is a very conservative religious country, and his mother, his brother, told me that Anwar, uh, that is Anwar's mother, their mother, uh, kept putting a prayer rug in Anwar's suitcase um, that he was taking to America, and Anwar kept taking it out, sort of embarrassed, saying, Mom, I'm going to America, I won't need this. Um, so, So that story just sort of revealed to me that, uh, you know, he kind of arrived without a big interest in religion. That changed, and he also discovered he had quite a knack for preaching. Um, Colorado State still has uh, a mosque that's in basically a house at the edge of the campus, uh, doesn't have a professional imam, so students and faculty, Muslim students and faculty, take turns um, leading Friday prayers, giving Friday sermon. And Anwar tried out his hand at preaching and found uh, he was good at it and he liked it. So after briefly working under pressure from his father in an engineering firm in Denver, um, he quit his job uh, after, I think, six or eight weeks and became a part-time imam at the Denver Islamic Society. Um, I'm, then, I'm, I'm speaking to you from Denver, I should say, where I, where I live. Yeah, so... so uh, uh, that, that was sort of where he got his, his start preaching. He did well. He got a job, uh, with his own mosque in San Diego, uh, and, uh, stayed there for a few years and then got a better job 
at a big mosque uh, outside Washington Falls Church, Virginia. Um, Darul Hijra is one of the big Washington area mosques, um, you know, quite an important post in the Muslim world uh, of greater Washington. So I should say up to now, what you have told me doesn't strike me as like terribly, you know, uh, unique, right? That, that you have, you know, someone who finds religion, whatever religion it is, and, you know, goes on to become a, a religious leader and, and, and a preacher, a rabbi or, or, or a, a priest. Exactly. I think it's only unusual in, in a couple ways. One is that um, he actually comes briefly under FBI investigation in 99 in San Diego um, because of some people he's met and they're worried that he's um, radical or connected to terrorists. But they closed the investigation pretty quickly. uh, But the more striking thing is how successful he was. When he landed at Darl Hijra outside D.C., he began a Ph.D. program at George Washington in, I think it was called Educational Development, and he was the main imam in this big mosque. He was only 29, not yet 30. Uh, he made his mark pretty quickly. He preached in the uh, capital, U.S. Capitol, one Friday. Um, he was getting on the speaking circuit and getting quite a reputation for himself as a sort of um, you know, hot young imam, so to speak, spoke American English without an accent, uh, very good at explaining things, a sort of warm uh, style of speaking. And so if there was ever a case of the right guy being in the right place at the right time, it was Anwar al at this big DC mosque uh, on 9-11-2001. And how and, and how did 9-11 change him or, or change his worldview or preaching? Well, suddenly uh, he was in this extremely um, tense um, and public role. Um, first, uh, you know, in the, in the days after 9-11, um, neighbors, non-Muslim neighbors, um, after hearing about some episodes of vandalism and threats toward the mosque, uh, came out and surrounded it, uh, holding candles. And, um, you, you know, there was sort of, uh, he was on TV talking about this. Uh, then the national media discovered him. Um, here's this guy next to uh, one of the world's biggest media markets uh, who speaks very good English and Uh, is able to answer questions about Islam, about Al-Qaeda. And, of course, this was at a time when Americans were desperate to, suddenly Mm -hmm. desperate to know more about all of this. So pretty soon, um, you you know, every Friday service, there are TV trucks in the parking lot. Uh, He's in the Washington Post. He's in the New York Times. New York Times uh, described him as something like... uh, um, a, a young imam who's seen by many as um, having the potential to be a bridge between East and West. And um, so he's on TV, he's on the radio. So, uh, you, you know, 9-11 has, has uh, really put a spotlight on this guy. And he's uh, enjoying the spotlight and uh, wearing it well. Uh, he denounces 9-11 uh, publicly, and one of the things I had to figure out in writing the book, given his his later history, 
was whether that was an act. You know, there was always the sort of um, suspicion uh, among some that maybe he was always Al Qaeda. He was sort of a sleeper agent of Al Qaeda or something like that. But I found actually got his brother to dig out some old emails from the week after 9-11. And uh, from from that evidence, from conversations he had with his brother and with other sort of intimates, um, you know, I was pretty pretty much able to establish that he was quite sincere in denouncing 9-11, which he saw as a, a sort of drastic setback for Muslims, uh, especially in the West. Mm-hmm. And he said in a, in a sermon, uh, you know, with the media there uh, and, and a huge crowd in this big mosque uh, in the first days after 9-11, that the special role for American Muslims was to be a bridge between the United States and a billion, billion Muslims worldwide. So he was putting out this message of sort of brotherhood. He was appearing um, on the panels that were uh, very popular in, in the months after 9-11, interfaith panels, you know, where you have a, an imam, a rabbi, and a priest or something yeah. talking about uh, things. And, and uh, you know, I talked to some of the rabbis and, and uh, Christian preachers who were on those panels. They were all extremely impressed. Uh, you know, found him to be friendly and warm and, and had no um, negative impression of the guy. And also super articulate. I mean, which is, which is, worth, which is worth emphasizing yeah. probably why people were so drawn to him uh, as well. Absolutely. And, and in a kind of, um, in, a, in a low-key, uh, non-threatening sort of way, he's really not a fire and brimstone preacher. He's more, uh, he, he used humor. Uh, and he was very ambitious, I should say. Um, things were going well. Uh, but he, you know, he was working hard to get his name out there. And as early as the San Diego years, he had his kid brother out on the sidewalk, uh, the summer, his brother at at age 17 visited him selling, um, audio cassettes of his sermons after the services. And, uh, from that he, he, uh, hooked up with a publisher who started putting out his sermons and lectures in box sets on CD. Mm -hmm. And he sold, um, for example, a 53 CD box set on the life of the Prophet Muhammad. Um, I mean, just a uh, an epic uh, performance. And uh, he did lots of other um, similar uh, productions, uh, but basically story from the Quran, from the Hadith, the Mm -hmm. sayings of of the Prophet. Uh, in the early history of uh, sort of the heroes of, of early Islam and so on. So he was steeped in that history. And, you know, it's sort of the equivalent of Bible stories. He was just very good at telling them. And, and so, so, so what happened? So he's um, a young, articulate, um, uh, popular, non-threatening, um, like the, the flavor of the month sort of imam in, in the Washington, D.C. circles. What, what went wrong? How did this start to, to turn? Well... Uh, it turned very suddenly. Um, and here's what happened. Uh, uh, to jump forward slightly, um, at the end of March 2002, um, Anwar Awlaki suddenly got on a plane for uh, the UK. And uh, with the exception of one brief visit, uh, he never came back. Uh, and... At the time, um, you know, and, and for some years thereafter, uh, it appeared and the, the word was that he had 
was sort of fed up with the wave of anti-Muslim sentiment after 9-11 and just couldn't take it anymore. And that's why he left. Um, in, in doing the reporting for the book, I was able to establish that that was not what happened. Uh, in fact, it just so happened that his younger brother, Amr, who um, was extremely helpful to me uh, for the book, and who, as an aside, um, until the Civil War began in Yemen, and I guess officially to this day, uh, was the Deputy Minister of Water and the Environment in Yemen, and therefore, uh, essentially, the technocrat. He also went to school in the U.S. and Canada, uh, and became the technocrat that their father wanted uh, Anwar to become. But get back to what happened. It happened that Amr, the younger brother, was visiting his older brother in Washington uh, in March of 2002. And he asked him, um, he really wanted him to come to Yemen, to come back to Yemen. Uh, he said, look, Anwar, when you come back to Yemen, you know, the country needs you. And to his great disappointment, Anwar said, you know what, things are going very well for me here. Uh, I'm really happy. Anwar was married with three kids. And, uh, you know, I really have no intention of moving back to Yemen. I'm staying here. Basically, I'm, you know, I'm an American. I'm staying for the duration. And this struck the younger brother because it was a, a disappointment to him. A few days later, he comes to the mosque at the time of evening prayer. And he finds that his brother's not leading the prayer. And he's, he goes in the back of the mosque and finds him. And Anwar looks completely shattered. And won't say what's wrong, but the next day takes him aside and tells him that he has learned that the FBI has files that could destroy him and that he's thinking about just leaving the United States. Uh, and so what was in these files? Uh, after 9-11, the FBI in this obviously frantic hunt for uh, the next attack or anyone in the U.S. who might be have some connection to al-Qaeda, uh, they learn that two of the 9-11 hijackers were uh, praying in Anwar Awlaki's mosque in San Diego, and that one of those hijackers and another one turned up at his mosque in Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, so they set out to determine, is this guy, you know, somehow a terrorist? Is he connected yeah. to terrorism? And they uh, put surveillance teams on him 24 hours a day, unbeknownst to Anwar Aliki. He has no idea um, that people are following him around everywhere he goes, following his wife around, mm -hmm. um, checking out everybody he meets. And within a couple months, they are satisfied that he is not any, anything to do with al-Qaeda. He's not a terrorist. He's not a danger. But in the course of following him, they discover that every week or two, he's going uh, to, through an escort service to meet with prostitutes in Washington hotels. Nah. And so uh, he, it turns out that what happened uh, was that the madam of one of, uh, you know, the, of this escort operation, the, the manager of the escort service, um, called him uh, because she had been visited by the FBI and um, she basically was calling him to chew him out, like, why are you bringing the FBI down on my business? Because uh, she, she suspected that because he was like a Muslim preacher in the aftermath of 9-11, that he was under FBI surveillance. Well, no, because actually the FBI would go to the women 
after Anwar would leave the hotel room, the FBI would show up and say, hey, you know, about that guy who just left, uh, you know, what was he talking about? Who did he tell you he was? And, you know, uh, and so this is all um, described along with the, all the surveillance reports on, on Anwar al and his family uh, in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages of FBI documents. Uh, and so they didn't particularly care uh, that he was visiting prostitutes. Um, but they did have, uh, you know, vast amounts of, uh, of files on, on this stuff. And that's what he learned from the madam when she called him, uh, was that the FBI has been following you everywhere and knows everything that you've been up to. This is what panics him. Uh, when he says the FBI has files that can destroy him, this is the conservative preacher, uh, in a conservative congregation, who has, you know, sort of set himself up as a as a uh, moral example and advisor, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and it's a it's a familiar uh, story from, uh, you know, evangelical pastors in the U.S. and so on. I was going to say the uh, exact same thing. I mean, it's such a similar storyline as as like you know the 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 you know, famous you know televangelists and stuff that kind of exa- go down and exactly do it. yeah. And I th- and and you know this guy the was swaggered uh, or something, yeah. Anwar was exactly, exactly, and uh, Anwar Aliki was, you know, was you know almost getting to be a sort of televangelist, uh, you know, of Islam. Uh, so he uh, he feared that the FBI would either charge him or leak the information, but could could ruin him. And you know, I talked to people at his mosque and so on, and they said, yeah, that would have ruined him. Yeah, that would have been extremely humiliating. And again, he's a married guy with three kids. He, you know, he had lectures on those CDs about um, uh, the sanctity of marriage and what makes a good marriage and so on. Uh, so, so he he just was terrified by so, this. I, I mean, it, it's one thing to kind of be terrified, right, about the um, you know, the, the 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 prospect that the FBI could ruin your career. It's it's another thing, uh, you know, for a peak against the FBI to turn you into like an anti-American firebrand. Like yep. how, how did like that transformation happen? Well, that was a gradual uh, process, but it began when he landed in the UK, had, a, had an uncle there is a very wealthy man who's sort of back and forth between um, Britain and Yemen. Um, and, but he, you know, he had already been on speaking tours to the UK um, these sort of uh, all-star imams who, who would um, go around to Birmingham and other cities uh, talking. And so he had some connections there. He began to give lectures in the East Lond- London Mosque, other places. And something that um, fo- folks might not be aware of is that in, at that time and until 2005, um, the level of uh, rhetoric in the Muslim community uh, in the UK was, was often quite radical. Um, fairly radical preachers were getting a lot of attention and, um, and the, and the authorities were, were tolerating it. And I well, think until they I'll, didn't, right? Well, until they didn't. Yeah. And that was basically after what they call seven, 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 2005, which was when the big attacks were carried out on the, on the London subway and buses that killed a bunch of people. And that changed the atmosphere. But until then, and, and Anwar Aliki lived in the UK uh, from the time he left the US in 2002 uh, until 2004. So he was there for a couple of years. And again, he started getting a reputation. But he found that the more radical uh, he was, uh, 
the better reception he got from these young Muslims. And he began to use um, the Islamic history stuff that it was, you know, it was his bread and butter, but to sort of talk in an indirect way about um, current events. And it almost became a kind of code language. So he was changing. You had all this ambition that uh, that had previously been channeled in in the direction of bridge building and sort of moderation and brotherhood, and now was get he was getting some some more kudos for talking uh, more militantly. And of course, the, the 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 world was changing as well. While he was there, the U.S. invades Iraq. That was extremely um, distressing to him, and I think he began to be to consider the sort of bin Laden line that the U.S. was at war with Islam. Um, and I mean, he certainly had that personal resentment to draw on. Yeah, and he, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, in a way, um, there's a lot going on in his story. Uh, and, uh, you know, most people are pretty complex animals, and he's no exception. I think his father's love for America uh, comes into play a little bit at, at times, that Anwar may resent that a little bit, uh, may be rebelling a little bit against that. He may uh, feel that America, as he becomes more religious and more conservative, um, he may feel that America, with its debauchery, had seduced him into visiting these prostitutes and uh, you know, sinning it's not and his fault, may clearly. sort of blame yeah. America for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, must be must be somebody's fault. So, so then, how? At what moment did he make the leap, move to Yemen, pledge allegiance to Al Qaeda? So he, by the time he leaves the UK, um, he's still considering other careers. Interesting enough, for a while, um, but uh, he gets to Yemen. He gets a following uh, very quickly. Uh, as a sort of, you know, Islamic scholar slash leader. And um, he uh, he makes contact with Al-Qaeda at some point, um, quite possibly when he is, um, uh, he's being followed around by Yemeni security, I should say. And that's partly at, uh, under pressure from U.S. authorities. He's, he's uh, putting out more and more radical stuff now. He's put out something called The Constance of Jihad, which is a long series of, of, of lectures that pretty much, um, you know, the title sums it up. He was getting much more interested in, in sort of the global jihad as, um, you, you know, proposed by Al Qaeda. Um, and so, and he's being hassled uh, in uh, Yemen by security folks, and then he's arrested. He's held in jail there in a, in a sort of public security jail for a year and a half. He probably meets some al-Qaeda people in there. He also does some reading uh, of some sort of uh, foundational books uh, on militant Islam. And when he comes out, again, he's sort of hassled by security as he travels around Sana'a. And he decides to move to the family's ancestral village, which is in a place called Shabwa. Uh, and... Uh, He's there for a while, and uh, not long after that, he sort of goes off the radar and joins Al-Qaeda, which is actually, at that point, mostly based in Shabwa, in this, in this same area, mm -hmm. uh, hiding out there. And he becomes, uh, all through this period, I should say, he's becoming um, 
a sort of early adopter of each technology. So he, um, when he's still in Sana'a, he creates his own website, anwaralaki.com. He has a Facebook page that's very active. Uh, he's giving lectures over something called Pal Talk, which allows you to speak to uh, a global audience over the internet. Um, so he, uh, and eventually he's uh, putting out videos and audio recordings on behalf of Al-Qaeda. On YouTube. And, uh, and, 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 you know, his home ends up being YouTube, really. Yeah. Um, not, not necessarily through his own uh, efforts, but all his fans, his growing sort of global audience, constantly uh, taking the audio from those old CDs, even his early stuff, The Life of the Prophet and so on, uh, and puts that up on YouTube uh, with beautiful pictures and so on, since it's just audio. Uh, and then he also has videos that he's making himself that go up there. Um, so he becomes a sort of YouTube star towards the end of his life. Um, and, and so, now, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that. So by, uh, you know, he, he comes to, uh, I guess, the second wave of uh, American media attention to Anwar Awlaki. The first wave is after 9-11 when he's calling for bridge building. The second wave begins when he's connected to... Nidal Hassan, that Army, U.S. Army psychiatrist, uh, Army major who uh, uh, decided to join the jihad at Fort Hood, Texas, and goes to a, um, a building at the fort and um, shoots the place up, kills 13 people. Um, and it turns out he's been in correspondence with Anwar Awlaki. Um, they had met in Virginia and... He's been sending Alaki all these uh, messages. Most of them uh, Anwar has not responded to, but he's a big fan. He's clearly uh, been influenced by Alaki. And Alaki returns the favor by putting on his website uh, a couple days after the shootings that Nidal Hassan is a hero, mm -hmm. um, a so sort of um, uh, praising this guy, saying that's exactly what the job is, what the obligation is of Muslims in the West is to attack. So uh, very directly endorsing uh, the attack on, on Fort Hood. Quite breathtaking, yeah. Um, and, and of course, there's also the so-called underwear bomber as well that, that was um, yes. you know, supposedly radicalized by Al-Waki and, and you know, if not directed by him. Yes. Yeah, this, this young Nigerian who famously tried to blow up a plane over Detroit on Christmas Day, December 25th in 2009. Turns out he told the FBI, and the plane did not blow up, the, the bomb sort of fizzled. And that guy told the FBI that Anwar Awlaki uh, had, had essentially recruited him, uh, vetted him, approved him for an operation, introduced him to the bomb maker, um, and gave him the final instruction to wait till he was over US soil before blowing up the plane. Um, subsequently, there's an attempt, uh, people might remember, to um, blow up a couple of car U.S. cargo planes, commercial cargo planes, uh, with uh, bombs hidden in printer cartridges, ink cartridges, and uh, there's lots of evidence that Anwar Awlaki was, mm -hmm. uh, was tied up in that plot. Uh, so he's working very hard by 2010 to uh, kill Americans, I think mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say, and and not just and, by inspiring them through um, enthusiastic YouTube videos, but but operationally helping them along the way. Exactly, and and when the evidence uh, from the underwear bomber 
um, you, you know, reaches the White House. Obama directs the Justice Department to uh, tell him, basically, would it be legal and constitutional for me to kill this guy using a drone strike? And the answer comes back, uh, yes, and on February 5th, 2010, he goes on the kill list. And, and, and it's, it's worth emphasizing, though, that this is extraordinary. I mean, there, there has never yeah. been an American deliberately targeted by the United States government in, in, in such a way. I mean, we have the Fifth Amendment. We have due process. Um, you know, yes. you're not supposed to be just killed by your government, by a drone necessarily, no matter if you're, you're abroad. Exactly. I mean, the, the, um, the closest analogy I could find was way back during the Civil War when Lincoln – uh, there were sort of gangs of Confederate marauders, and in some cases, Lincoln um, signed orders uh, that if these guys were found, you know, they could be shot on sight, essentially. Uh, but even that isn't quite the same thing, because that was in the context of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. So this, in, in a lot of ways, wa- was unprecedented. Um, the justification that Obama and other officials uh, have given to it is, is essentially... Uh, they often have used the analogy of a justified police shooting, that if someone is trying to kill innocent people, uh, you know, you know, sort of uh, pointing a gun around uh, and the cops show up, they can shoot that person dead uh, without going to court, without uh, getting any kind of a, um, indictment or uh, giving the guy any particular um, hearing. Um, because it's, you know, essentially an emergency. And that's what they say was going on, that Anwar al-Awlaki was working to kill Americans, had the capability to kill Americans, indeed, uh, you know, on a large scale, potentially. And uh, so, therefore, they were justified that the due process that um, is required to take somebody's life or liberty under the Constitution um, is not necessarily judicial process, not necessarily court trial, and that the executive branch's uh, secret review of the evidence against Anwar Awlaki amounted to the process that was due to him under the Constitution. So now, of course, I, there, I, I, there I are lots can, of people disagree. Mm-hmm. Well, well, can I ask, I mean, to what extent has your reporting um, revealed whether or not, you know, President Obama himself, you know, a constitutional law professor, um, was was tortured or not over this decision to effectively, uh, in one interpretation, you know, chip away at the normative prohibition against um, a president ordering hits on American citizens? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the um, I think the irony here, of course, is that that Obama had been uh, very critical of another violation of sort of American norms and traditions when Bush ordered um, what um, certainly by American historical standards and world standards was torture. um, And and that was ordered based on secret legal opinions from the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel. And here was Obama ordering the killing of an American citizen based on secret legal opinions from the Office of Legal Counsel of Justice. So it was an uncomfortable parallel, I think, for him. But he felt very strongly uh, that this was justified and indeed even said to his um, subordinates at the White House, this is an easy one, Mm -hmm. by which he meant, I think, that um, they had an eyewitness uh, 
the Nigerian who tried to blow up the plane over Detroit, the underwear bomber, who you know gave firsthand uh, account of Anwar Awlaki's role in a terrorist mm-hmm. plot. Uh, they had lots of other evidence, and they also had Anwar Awlaki going on YouTube and saying uh, not only um, you know that this is this is everyone every Muslim's obligation was to kill Americans. So. Uh, so I think that's what he meant by this is an easy one. So for the so, book, I well, can I can I, can I just ask you? I mean, you, you've studied this yeah, yeah. more more than anyone else. I mean, where do you come down on this question of of whether or not uh, this this targeting was either morally justified or legally justified and and proper? Well, you know, I I don't give a simple answer to that question um, because I I think it's actually a very difficult question. Um, and I, I, I would say that if you think it was a great idea and an easy decision to kill an American, that I hope you would read my book and have second thoughts. And if you thought it was a terrible thing and a war crime and Obama should be impeached for targeting an American, I would hope you would read my book and have second thoughts because I have a lot of, uh, respect having covered terrorism for a long time for the people in the government who, uh, feel the responsibility of preventing terrorist attacks, all of whom live in the shadow of 9-11. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, if that airliner had blown up over Detroit, 300 innocent people would have been dead, and it would have been on them. It would have been on Obama. Um, and so I have a lot of sympathy for um, the position that they're in. Um, I guess... I would say, you know, to sort of fast forward a little bit in retrospect, but, but it does, I mean, I also would say that it makes me uncomfortable that any president, setting aside the particulars in this case, it, it, it makes me uncomfortable to think that any president uh, would have the um, authority to order the killing uh, of an American citizen he deems to be a dangerous enemy based on secret uh, intelligence evidence. Uh, that just doesn't sound like America. Yeah. And so that really bothers me. But the, the thing that makes it even uh, more complicated and, in fact, dubious is the, um, the ultimate outcome. Because after this guy was killed, uh, I think Obama and his folks – were very pleased with themselves. Um, Osama bin Laden had been killed in May of 2011. In September of 2011, uh, Anwar al-Liki was killed in this drone strike. And I think they were feeling like, hey, you know, notches on the belt. We're, we're doing well here. We're keeping America safe. And, you know, it's politically uh, not at all a bad thing in the United States to be seen as tough on terrorism. Um, but what happened afterwards, I think they had not fully reckoned with the fact that when you kill a YouTube star in the internet era, uh, that he's not exactly dead, not in his most important role as a radicalizer and an Al-Qaeda recruiter. When I started working on this book, I think there were about 30 or 40,000 hits. If you put Anwar Awlaki's name into the YouTube search engine, today there are about 70,000 and his influence has turned up in most of the terrorism cases, terrorism uh, criminal cases 
in the U.S. since his death, in the five years since he was killed. So it's it's then possible that you know droning uh, Alawaki in, in such a way raised his profile. Um, and I mean, you know, just just before we we, we spoke, I, I you know checked him out on on YouTube to to watch a few videos. Um, yeah, and, and it's clear, you know, there, there's no dearth of of uh, videos from him if you want to find them very easily. Yeah, exactly. And what I think his part of his power as a um, as a radicalizer, part of his appeal, is that he he's the uh, the unique example. I believe in the whole um, sort of history of uh, modern history of uh, global jihad. Uh, the, the only guy who began as a mainstream preacher and really established himself with things like his series on the Prophet Muhammad, which is completely mainstream stuff. And uh, and not only that, but you know he has sermons on YouTube on obesity, on marriage. On all kinds of things, and uh, and it's all mixed up with why you can why a Muslim should never trust a non-Muslim, uh, how the U.S. is at war with Islam, how it's every Muslim's duty to uh, attack America, and uh, so it, you can see how uh, it happens, and it has happened many times that uh, young impressionable people get on YouTube, get on the web start surfing around listening to this guy's stuff. And in many cases, they're kind of introduced to Islam and introduced to jihadist Islam at the same time. Uh, and, it, you know, it's worth mentioning that uh, the Boston Marathon bombers, those two brothers, Chechen uh, brothers, the Tsarnaev brothers, uh, were big fans of Anwar Awlaki. And a couple weeks before the attack on the Boston Marathon, the younger brother was tweeting um, praise for Alaki's uh, lectures on the hereafter, mm -hmm. uh, saying everyone should listen to the, to it. And uh, similarly, uh, you know, and there are lots of other instances. Um, the attack, the attack, attackers on Charlie Hebdo, even though they were French speakers, uh, a lot of his stuff is translated on the web, and uh, and they were big fans. And uh, and the uh, couple in San Bernardino, California, who shot up that luncheon meeting, killing 14 people last year, they, uh, too, or at least the husband, it turns out, was a big fan of Anwar Alaki. So, I mean, based on, on that metric, it seems that killing him, um, number one, violated this big normative prohibition uh, in, that's embedded in the Constitution, and two, didn't really have its intended effect. Uh I think that's I think that's true. I you know I can hear right now um, the voices of some of the people in the system, the counterterrorism people, saying, uh, "Well, it did it did make a difference. This guy will never, um, you know, recruit and you know coach someone face to face to attack America, um, and uh, eventually he'll fade from the web and maybe someone will replace him, maybe not. But, uh, 
um, you know, we're still safer today with him dead. I think that's what Obama would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> you know, I guess what's, was a very what's serious troubling for me is that I, you know, I, I sort of like trust Obama's judgment in these sort of things just because, you know, I, I you know, I'm like more kind of simpatico to, to the Obama worldview than I am to say the Bush or definitely like the Trump worldview. Um, but, you know, the, it, it, it just this the idea that a, a president should have that power. I mean, you is is just somewhat troubling. I mean, I imagine uh, that power in the hands of a President Trump, and I'm I'm fearful uh, with President Obama yeah. because you know I'm, I'm I sort of get him a, a bit. I'm a little less fearful, but it's still it, it's that the piercing of that that prohibition is 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 challenging for me to overcome. Yes, and I think you know when you think about um, the position of Obama in making that decision. Uh, part of the legal opinion approving the killing of this American citizen was that it was infeasible to capture him. Um, in, in an absolute sense, it certainly wasn't infeasible to capture him or at least try to capture him. He was you know, in a fairly isolated patch of Yemen when he was killed, not too far from the Saudi border. You can easily imagine you know, a SEAL team um, helicoptering in from Saudi Arabia in the middle of the night. Um, but the problem there is very dangerous mission. Undoubtedly, Eliki and his, you know, bodyguards would fight to the death. And so you might well end up with a couple of dead Americans and maybe a dead Anwar Eliki. Uh, and, but, but I think what changes it all is the, is the existence of the drone. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can imagine what Congress would say after such a mission failed and killed a couple of brave SEALs. Uh, they would really, um, y- you know, be hammering Obama, you know, why didn't you kill him with a drone? Why did you put these brave Americans at risk? So you can see how the technology um, drives the decision, controls the decision to a considerable degree. You know, we, uh, we've been talking for, for a long time about your book, which I think I, I, I'll mention one, uh, the you know, most premier high profile foreign policy award, the, the, the Gelb Prize. So congrats on that. Um, uh, and I'd love to just learn briefly though, uh, about you and where you came from and how you got into this line of work. So where are you from? I, uh, was born in Georgia, but I grew up, uh, mostly around DC. Okay. Were were your uh, parents in government? No, my father was a chemical engineer and my mother was mostly housewife. Okay. And, and so how did you get into journalism? I sort of stumbled into it like a lot of journalists. I did not do any in high school or college, um, but I found myself um, a couple years after college with two degrees in English literature and um, a a need for employment. Um, I was actually thinking about doing a PhD and trying to teach literature, uh, but I wanted to get out and do something else for a while. And uh, I'd gotten a master's in English literature, and and so um, that's getting up and doing something else. <laughs> well, you know, I, I literally thought, you know, geez, I have a degree in English. You know, journalists write in English, <laughs> so and I got, I managed to get a job. The the problem, with, you know, in journalism is if you don't have clips, you can't get a job, and if you don't have a job, you can't get clips. And mm-hmm. so I got around that by becoming a news clerk at the late, great Washington Star, the afternoon paper in D.C., uh, which closed a couple years after uh, I was there. But I spent about a year in that job, then got a a reporting job in Greensboro, North Carolina, spent three years there, then went to the Baltimore Sun, where I stayed for about 20 years and did many, many different jobs, um, covering courts, covering medicine, 
I was Moscow correspondent. Um, I'd studied Russian. So the Baltimore, this, I this is get, shocking to say the Baltimore Sun had a Moscow correspondent. You know, it, it is amazing. Uh, uh, the Baltimore Sun, for almost for most of the time I was there, had eight foreign bureaus. <clears throat> had about 15 people in Washington. The newsroom peaked at about 420 uh, in the late 90s or around 2000. Uh, today it's a newsroom of about 90. So the so, newsroom is 420 to 90. And so, what gave you the um, like the, the itch to want to go abroad to to, to go to Moscow? You know, I had uh, gotten into Russia and Russian mainly through Russian literature. I went and spent a summer studying Russian in in what was then Leningrad, and um, I always I had a wonderful time, and uh, you know, just got a real kick out of learning a language and sort of learning a culture from the inside. And of course, those were in cold that was Cold War days when they were particularly fascinating. And about like the uh, late 80s, I was actually there the summer of 76. Um, And then I went back as a correspondent uh, from 88 to 91. So I was living there under Gorbachev um, as, uh, you you know, Soviet citizens learned about their history for the first time, learned about the West for the first time as all the uh, Soviet republics began to uh, demand independence and as the whole Soviet system sort of came apart. So it was an amazing time to be there. So did you, uh, while, while you were there, I mean, was there a moment where you realized that you are, are witnessing just like a profound transfor- transformational moment in world history? Is there like a, was it, was there like a single moment that you can recall um, realizing that you're just in the midst of this? I mean, it was pretty obvious from the time that I went there at the end of 87 um, that that was uh, what was happening, that it was, you know, that it was really in a stunning kind of um, period. But I'll just I'll just mention one example. And that was um, there were the first free elections uh, basically in Russian history when I was there and they elected a Soviet parliament. And uh, one day. And they, they televised the sessions of the parliament live. There was huge interest. And they could be pretty wild. <clears throat> and there was a famous Soviet weightlifter named Vlasov, Yuri Vlasov, who uh, was elected to that parliament and took the microphone one day and gave this um, fire-breathing speech denouncing the KGB. This was the kind of thing – it was, the, you know – uh, until maybe a year before, maybe two years before, people didn't even mention the KGB, uh, y- you know, in, in public conversation. Uh, you know, if you're at a bar or something, they would knock three times for KGB or they would refer to them as the neighbors. Uh, and, and here was this guy on live national television uh, describing the KGB as an underground empire, you know, an evil empire and all this stuff. So, you know, it was just stunning uh, what was happening during that time. Very exciting and actually a very optimistic time for the most part. Um, do you ever know what, what, what came of this uh, weightlifter? Did he, uh, did he know, die from natural causes? <laughs> I think he did. Um, you know, it's funny. It's only when Putin came along and consolidated power quite a few years later um, that people who opposed the Russian government began to uh, die in uh, unusual ways. Um, so how long total did you spend in, in Moscow? 
Uh, I was there for about three and a half years at that point. I've been back a bunch since, but um, I lived there for about three and a half years and actually wrote my first book uh, about the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union uh, and essentially the role of information in collapsing the Soviet Union, sort of arguing that the that Soviet citizens finding out about their past and the outside world uh, was what made the place come apart, made the system fall apart. So I, I published that book called Dismantling Utopia after I was back. Um, and, and how was that book received? Um, you know, received, uh, received well by, you know, those, those who took an interest. It was, it certainly didn't make the publisher solvent, uh, but it was, it was great fun. Uh, you know, as well that's, received. That's a good and, way. That's a very good <laughs> way to describe book sales. Did not make the yeah. publisher solvent. I, I, I like yeah. that. Um, so, so, but when did you, uh, I guess, start in, in, you know, what you're known for now, the, the national security beat? Well, while I was still at the Baltimore Sun, after I came back from Russia, um, I discovered that the National Security Agency, which is right down the street from Baltimore, um, yeah, Fort Meade, right? Yeah. Fort Meade, exactly. Uh, the largest U.S. intelligence agency. Uh, that that there it was sitting there, and I knew more about the KGB than I did about NSA. NSA was very little known at the time. A lot of people confused it with the National Security Council, didn't really know what it did. And so another guy and I, this is also speaks of the heyday of newspaper journalism. Another guy and I uh, spent a year and a half reporting on NSA and did a, a kind of massive uh, explanatory series, six part series in the Baltimore Sun about, you know, what the NSA was and what it did. Uh, so that kind of got me into that world a little bit. And uh, after 9-11, you know, I pretty much started writing about terrorism and counterterrorism related things. And then I moved uh, to the New York Times in 2004 uh, and kept on going, uh, covering basically national security and related things. How, how, how did your reporting change uh, after 9-11 or, or like how did a, a focus of it differ in, in, in any meaningful way? You know, I think the... Um, of course, it's 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 exciting in a lot of ways to write about the CIA and uh, you know and Al Qaeda and NSA and so on. And I, I have no regrets about it. Um, you, you're you know you're writing about very important things, and there have been these um, colossal sort of moral issues uh, that have been brought up by the counterterrorism campaign. First, the whole. Um, controversy over interrogation and torture under Bush, which I wrote a great deal about, and then the controversy over targeted killing drone with drones under Obama. So, I mean, it's been terrific, but, but a lot of it is um, kind of at a distance. Uh, you, you're not there when the drone strike occurs, maybe for the better. Uh, you know, NSA is, is a black box. It's hard to find out about. Uh, you know, I spent I spent the summer of 2013 in a kind of closet at the New York Times in New York um, going through 60,000 of Snowden's documents and ended up writing some stories about those. But still, you're, you're at a distance. You're using documents. You're, you're talking to people often on the phone or maybe you're meeting them secretly. But uh, I, I kind of miss the downside of that kind of reporting is, is sort of eyewitness uh, reporting. Mm -hmm. I spent a good bit of time 
um, writing about drugs and crime and uh, guns and murder in Baltimore. And I really enjoyed and learned a lot from kind of uh, doing street reporting of that kind. So I still kind of miss that. Um, but like, I guess you said something earlier about like the, the kind of profound moral weight that is attached to some of the stories that you're covering. Um, how do you, I guess, personally um, uh, sort of navigate that, right? Like, how do you um, understand and, and, and approach like the moralistic aspects of, of what you're saying, of what you're reporting? Well, you know, I mean, I guess, I guess in general, our job is to dig out the facts and publish them and leave the moralizing to others. Um, but, but obviously, you know, it's it sort of, you have to make sense of the facts that you dig up and, you know, something that, you know, um, I've never gotten so much, um, overheated email than on the torture issue. And, uh, you know, I'd say it was about 50% people, attacking me in the New York Times uh, for, um, you know, s smearing the, the government mm -hmm. uh, in its attempt to keep the, the nation safe and essentially taking the side of, uh, of terrorists and half attacking the New York Times for soft peddling uh, torture and refusing to call torture, torture and so on. And uh, so... You know, but it was it was sort of fascinating. Mm -hmm. But I I always go back to the to the factual side. So um, so what I found most compelling about the torture story, for example, is that you know when it you know when the CIA was faced with capturing and interrogating Al Qaeda suspects. They had no recent history of interrogation, no experience in interrogation. And they turned to two military psychiatrists to design their program. It turned out those uh, psychologists, rather, those psychologists also had never conducted a real world interrogation. And so it was sort of the blind leading the blind. And so it was it ended up being a sort of staggering story of government incompetence and uh, you know, a lot of it has has come out since with the Senate's report. Um, but again, you know, there there are moral consequences for all this stuff. But I don't see my job as being a philosopher. I see my job as being a reporter. Uh, I guess final question, uh, because you brought it up, uh, Snowden, um, and, and you have been being very you know, deeply involved in, in reporting some of the, the Snowden uh, leaks and, and the Snowden documents. Do you have a, an opinion on Stan on whether or not he ought to be pardoned? <laughs> well, it's funny. This week, um, as you know, uh, all the major human rights groups have sort of come out uh, at a splashy press conference to, um, and, and you know, that involves Snowden um, remotely from Moscow to call for uh, to pressure Obama into giving him a pardon. My surmise, my guess, my very strong belief is that Obama will decline to do that. Um, but I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen somewhere down the road, um, uh, because I think, you know, uh, the public and Congress was split on this, but I think it was about 50, 50 between those who 
um, were appalled at some of what NSA was doing uh, and those who supported what NSA was doing. Um, but I do think that as someone who'd written about NSA uh, for years, um, I do think NSA, you know, I was I kind of think of them as as an outfit that went from being a mom and pop bookstore to being Amazon.com, but in secret. And the stuff that they were doing, they, they were able to do because of the cellular telephone revolution, the smartphone revolution, the Internet um, was staggering to a lot of people. And uh, that was combined with the post 9-11 period when their focus was increasingly the United States and Americans because they were looking for terrorists in America. So, you know, um, I, I can I, I think Snowden unquestionably did a public service. I'd be a hypocrite not to say that because, you know, we published a lot of his stuff um, and we think those articles were a public service. So telling people what NSA was doing at the same time, you kind of have to understand that there there have to be rules for government. Um, and some of those rules involve secrecy. Personally, I think the secrecy is greatly uh, excessive. Uh, and, and I guess I would as a journalist. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I, I think of the guy as um, it's hard for me to think of him as a traitor. I think he, his intentions were were quite good and what he's accomplished was quite worthwhile. Whether he, you know, still should um, be punished in some way for knowingly violating the law, uh, as people who commit acts of civil disobedience often are. You know, again, I'll leave that to the philosophers. Uh, well, Scott, thank you so much for your time and, and for spending extra time, you know, with me and, and with the listeners talking about, you know, your, your own personal story as well. Thank you, Mark. I, I greatly enjoyed it. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Scott uh, for telling this tremendous story. Um, before I sign off, I'm trying to gather what I'm calling stories of impact from you, the listener, uh, that detail the ways in which the podcast has shaped your life or uh, inspired you to action. Basically, I'm trying to attract advertisers, and I think a good way to do that is to show that this podcast is more than just something you passively consume, uh, but rather it's something that inspires you to take some action, whether it's buy a book or check out a grad school um, or think about the world in, in a, a different way. Uh, anyway, if you have those stories, please email me them to me. You can go to the uh, contact forum on globaldispatchespodcast.com and just send me an email letting me know how the podcast has inspired you to action or made you think about something differently. I, I would so appreciate it. All right. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time. Bye.